I find um, things like family and your home and friendship, all these things to be incredibly sacred and just as sacred, if not more than, you know, the temples I visited or the, you know, those sort of um, the meditation experiences I've had. While those are incredibly valuable, I think um, spirituality to me is interwoven in every aspect of life and in the appreciation of the kind of sacredness of of your life. That was Ajit Kaur, and I'm Henry Winslow. You're listening to Dharma Talk. Dharma Talkers, welcome to the show. As always, I appreciate you whether you've been listening since day one or this is your first time tuning in. Real quick, have you tried the Henry Yoga app yet? If not, what are you waiting for? I've got a 40-day program of 40-minute Hatha Vinyasa classes and asana workshops waiting for you. iPhone users in the US, just head over to the App Store and download it. Android and international folks, I got you. The whole program is available on the web app at henryyoga.com. And guess what? You can try it out at no cost. Get the first two classes free at henryyoga.com or on the Apple App Store. Okay, creatives out there. And by the way, that's everyone. We're literally all creators. Whether we've assumed some kind of identity or narrative that we are quote unquote not creative or not. But right now I'm speaking to the creative archetype within all of you. Okay, how do you find inspiration? Do you meditate to tap into the unmanifest ideas of your subconscious? Do you have a system or a routine to ease you into that creative flow? Or do you collaborate and co-create with others? My guest this week, Ajit Kaur, is a world touring musician known for her kundalini and mantra-inspired work. And she says her absolute favorite part of the creative process is collaboration. Because it's in this mingling of minds that we are challenged to step outside of our own rigid ideas, to trust, to be open, to suspend our expectations and personal visions as artists. And as a result, something totally new and unique can be born, something that neither individual could bring to bear on her own. And you know what? That resonates with me because in a way, that's what a podcast interview is too. A beautiful interplay of two minds, two energies, to surface new ideas and ways of thinking not only for the listeners, but also for the participants. I hope you'll love this interview, but before we get there, let's take a quick moment to thank our sponsors. This episode is brought to you in part by Yoga East Austin. Coming up in May is an event I'm really looking forward to because it will be a first. In May, I'll be heading back to Yoga East Austin in Texas this time to practice yoga with Anna Forrest and Jose Calarco. Anna and Jose were previous guests on the show and one of my favorite interviews of 2019. I enjoyed speaking with them about how they have integrated music and ceremony into their yoga classes and workshops, but mostly Anna's approach to using expansive and pinpoint breathing to heal specific areas of trauma. 
Her system of yoga, coupled with Jose's passion for music and ceremony, set an intention, or as Jose would say, an invocation for a nurturing and spiritual practice. Many of my favorite teachers and peers, and even past guests of the show like Jared McCann and Benjamin Sears, have all attributed much of their growth to time they spent learning from Anna. I know even today, parts of my practice are bits and pieces of wisdom Anna has taught to someone that I have learned from. I'm super stoked to be with the transcendent and legendary Anna and Jose on May 8th through 10th, back with my friends at Yoga East Austin. Spots are filling quick, so be sure to check out yogaeastaustin.com slash yoga and use promo code HENRYWINS to save on all four workshops Anna and Jose are teaching. Once again, that's yogaeastaustin.com slash F-O-R-R-E-S-T-Y-O-G-A and use code HENRYWINS to save on the workshops. This episode is brought to you in part by Warrior Bridge NYC. Warrior Bridge is an interdisciplinary movement studio in downtown Manhattan, offering classes in yoga, acro yoga, handstands, and flexibility training. Their classes are skillfully designed, featuring anatomy-informed warm-ups and progressions, drawing from and blending different yoga and movement modalities. While the offerings are diverse, what's constant is an emphasis on practicing in a way that honors where you're coming from and where you're trying to go. Warrior Bridge offers a full schedule of weekly classes, weekend workshops with visiting instructors, and teacher training programs, the next wave of which will be held this summer in NYC. First up, anatomy and movement teacher training from July 15th to 25th, led by Sean Langhouse and Emily Lazinski. Sean was a past guest on Dharma Talk, of course. This training is designed for both practicing and aspiring teachers who want to better understand anatomy and how the body works as well as Warrior Bridge's unique training methodology around yoga, handstand, flexibility training, prehab, and injury prevention. And the next training will be their Acro Warrior Teacher Training from July 27th to August 6th. This is New York City's only Acro Yoga Teacher Training and is all about immersing yourself in the Acro practice and acquiring the skills to safely and intelligently lead Acro Yoga classes and practice. Learn more and register at warriorbridge.com. Now, to formally introduce my guest this week, Ajit Kaur, at Ajit Music on Instagram, is a world music artist weaving inspiration from traditional Irish folk to mystical and meditative soundscapes. She and her band have assembled from Spain, Ireland, and the United States to offer a musical experience which transcends boundaries and takes listeners on a journey through melody and sonic texture. Collaboration is central in her work, and some of her collaborators include Trevor Hall, Isling Irwin, Sukmani Rayat, Rising Appalachia, Snatam Kaur, Seamus Egan, and Pia. Her newest album, Indigo Sea, was self-produced and engineered and was released independently with support from fans and listeners. Celebrated as number one on the iTunes World Chart and Billboard Top 10 New Age Chart, Ajit Kaur's music continues to be embraced by communities all across the globe. If this episode resonates with you and you would love to know more about Ajit and check out her music, of course, then go to dharmatalk.show and type Ajit in the search bar.
That's spelled A-J-E-E-T. And there you will find all the notes, highlights with timestamps, and links for this episode. And if you're looking for something to read, then check out my running list of every book ever recommended on Dharma Talk. Ajit recommended three. So go to henrywins.com slash books and pick one out. Now, without further ado, please enjoy my interview with Ajit Kaur. Ajit Kaur, I am so happy to have you on Dharma Talk today. I am a huge fan of your music. I love to play it in my yoga classes, and I feel like at any given time when I'm driving, I'm either listening to mantra music or playing podcasts. So this is kind of an interesting mix of my two worlds today. How are you? Yeah, that's so great to hear. I'm I'm pretty similar. Um, I'm doing really well, and I'm excited to have a have a talk today. Looking forward to it. Very good. Well, we start every episode with the same opening question, which tends to outline where the rest of the conversation will go. So I'll lead you with that question today. What does the word dharma mean to you, and what is your dharma as you understand it now? You start with the small stuff, huh? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I I definitely grew up with the word dharma around a lot. Both of my parents are very into um, Eastern traditions and spiritual traditions in general. So this word fl- was, you know, always kind of floating around and from the different kind of different lenses of, the, of many different traditions. So um I feel like my own personal understanding of it at this point is that it's it's your own sense of calling or your own kind of uh, you know existing in what feels most true and kind of sits um, in the best possible way. So I feel like this doesn't have to be a spiritual sort of calling necessarily. You know, some people their dharma would be a sort of spiritual calling. Um, or towards a certain practice, but I feel that it's actually much bigger than that and something that every person of every walk of life would experience. That kind of sense of when you move into something and you feel like this is right, this is like really in line with me and um, versus kind of a path that might be for, for other reasons that doesn't quite sit right. So I think that sense of dharma is really when you're walking a path that sits Um, in a very peaceful place within yourself that you really feel right in every aspect of that path you're walking. And for you, of course, you know, you have found a spiritual way of life. Maybe for another person, it doesn't look that way. But would you, would you say that there is some spirituality behind being in a path of life that does feel right compared to doing something that someone told you to do or any other kind of reasoning that people have for taking steps that don't feel right? Yeah. I mean, I think overall my sort of understandings and definitions of like spirituality, for example, are quite broad. I always feel like um, it's all most meaningful to me when it's really closely linked to life and daily life. And like, I find, um, things like family and your home and friendship, all these things to be incredibly sacred and 
just as sacred, if not more than, you know, the temples I visited or the, you know, those sort of um, the meditation experiences I've had. While those are incredibly valuable, I think um, spirituality to me is interwoven in every aspect of life and in the appreciation of the kind of sacredness of, of your life. And um, so, yeah, I guess I would say it is spiritual, but it doesn't have to appear that way from the outside. Right. Right. I, w- I would agree with that. It's easy for um, someone to look at, let's say someone like you who, you know, wears certain type of clothing or sings devotional mantras and say that's spiritual versus what I'm doing is, is not, it's every day. It's, um, it's like modern even, but in reality, spirituality is something that's totally infused into your way of life and your approach and attitude toward whatever it is that you're doing. I agree with you a hundred percent on that. How did you, um, how did you take your background and your lessons that you alluded to earlier from your parents and find your way into your current practice of, of spirituality? Like what was it that, um, what sort of impressions did your parents leave on you and how have you gone off on your own? Um, yeah, that's a great question. Cause I think it's, you know, it's so individual and so important for each of us to kind of have what we're given in childhood or, or in our early years and kind of grow then also into our own understanding of that. And I've definitely had, um, you know, lots of experience with that and continue to, and I hope I'll always be exploring and changing and finding my own path more and more. Um, but when I, yeah, when I was growing up, my, my father, um, both my parents are quite spiritual. My father, um, was in a Catholic monastery, um, training to be a priest for 13 years as, as a young person, starting when he was 13. Um, so he, of course, studied a lot of world religions and, um, theology and learned Greek and Latin within that context, and then has continued to translate a lot of sacred texts and of many different traditions, um, since then. But he left, um, right before his potential of being ordained as a priest just a few months before and decided to live more in the world. And my mother, um, has been practicing yoga and meditation since she was a teenager in New York City. Um, and she, she met some meditation teachers as a teenager and has, that's always been very important, yoga and meditation in her life and practice. So I grew up with these, you know, very, very eclectic mix of things. Um, and I really did, I have gone quite deeply into um, like the yoga, meditation, and I've spent a lot of time in India and a lot of time within the Sikh tradition. But I do think because of my my own kind of background, um, I do feel quite open about, about spiritual practice. I don't feel a kind of limitation or need to belong to one individual group. I feel more that my dharma is to continue always feeling what feels right, what feels true for me at that time. And, um, it's a very personal thing. You know, your spiritual path is a very personal thing. And so I feel very open to changing kind of constantly in how I relate to that. 
Yeah, you're um, you're quite lucky, I, I would say, in being able to see different paths toward one truth, even from an early childhood perspective, with your father being in the Catholic side and your mother being more open to yoga and Eastern philosophy. Would you would you say that that is common amongst the Sikh or, or Kundalini crowd in that community to be open to multiple different um maybe even a non-dogmatic approach or is that something that's unique to your background? Um, I think mostly it's unique to my background, but it's also something that is definitely within kind of the tradition of the Sikh tradition. But I think also it's within almost every, um, you know, religious tradition. If you go far enough back that there's that kind of openness and inclusivity and um, desire to to recognize everyone's kind of individual path. And, um, but I think for the most part, spiritual traditions lose track of that at some point. Um, and I think definitely my experience of it is that my, my kind of experience of openness and exposure to a lot of different practices would have been just pretty individual to my kind of family setup, my mm-hmm. strange and wonderful family. Yeah. Well, let's, let's go back, um, back to the beginning of your practice. And I know, you know, it's been infused into your life from a very early age, but you have a practice now that consists of Kundalini yoga, among other things and performing music. So how did you get there? Um, when did music enter your life? Uh, was that something that was influential from your parents or something that you found on your own? And how did you begin to interweave music with your sadhana? Um, well, it's definitely something music has always been a part of, uh, my life and my kind of upbringing. I, my, my family is Irish on both sides and, um, you know, if you are familiar with, with Irish families at all, there's often a lot of music and I think some families more than others. And, um, especially my mother's family, there's just a really strong, um, kind of daily, um, daily practice of, of traditional Irish music, singing in Irish. And at every, you know, at every meal that we have with our relatives, we'll, we'll all kind of either read a poem or sing a song or play an instrument. And my family kind of also brought that just into our, our household, always having friends over, bringing their instruments and kind of sitting around in the living room playing music. So my, my kind of upbringing with music was more um, through Irish music. And also my grandfather was a musician. Um, I actually, as I'm sitting here, I'm looking at his fiddle is hanging right above my kind of work spot. And um, so he was one of the first people to teach me music starting really young. Um, He had an organ in his basement. He was a plumber and I'd go down and he'd teach me chords on the organ and um, teach me the fiddle. And my father also is a great musician who learned from his father, but also um, in the monastery was really focusing on music. So yeah, I guess it's always been a part of life in that way. And then at some point when I when I started getting more into yoga and meditation, um, it was actually for kind of health reasons. When I was probably nine or 10, I started getting 
more into having my own yoga practice. And I, you know, there's a lot of chanting and um, meditations with music, especially within the Kundalini tradition. So that was kind of an easy way for me to kind of latch on to this piece of the practice that already music was already something I really loved. So it was a very natural sort of um, progression into also relating to music through more of the spiritual traditions. If it's not too personal to ask, uh, what, what sort of health problems were you experiencing at age nine or 10 that led you to yoga? Um, I was dealing with an autoimmune disorder that's pretty common, Hashimoto's, uh, and also a number of other sort of seemingly unrelated, but I think maybe related, um, mm -hmm. sort of different autoimmune issues. And so I was just dealing with a lot of kind of chronic pain and fatigue and, um, and that was kind of hard as a, as a really young person, you know, just as a child trying to understand how to continue going to school and doing the things I love to do. Um, but it definitely had a really big impact on me to, to kind of deal with, with illness and things starting at a very young age. I think that that has been one of my sort of biggest teachers in life for sure. Yeah, I'm sure. And was your mother practicing Kundalini yoga at the time? She was, yeah. She was also teaching um, Hatha yoga, but she, but she was also um, teaching Kundalini yoga. She met Yogi Bhajan in her twenties, um, and so there was that kind of sense of yoga always being around, but up until the point of me having kind of illness and needing to look for things that would support me, um, it was more like her own practice where she'd kind of, she'd disappear into the place where she did her thing, you know, and as kids, we'd just kind of watch and wonder what she did in there. Um, and then at that point around like nine or 10, I started getting more interested in it myself. And, um, we started going to yoga classes together and I got more kind of more engaged in that side of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Th this is really interesting to me because, you never know with parents and children, sometimes there's a tendency to kind of rebel against whatever your parents are doing, but I don't know what the factors are at play, but in, in this case, you saw that she was doing something that maybe had a little element of wonder and mystery behind it, and it was enough to draw you in. Was there ever a moment where you resisted it because it was like, oh, that's mom's thing? Yeah, definitely. I think for most of my teenage years and kind of preteen years, it was, I was more than happy to go to yoga classes and also to go to, um, some healers that I, that were very important to me within that community, but I wasn't about to go and, you know, advertise it to my friends. Um, but then I took teacher training when I was 16. And I think that was a big part of then, um, you know, feeling like it was my own thing to share and to kind of own, that was quite separate than my mother's. What does your practice look like now? I'm sure that as someone who started practicing at age nine, you've gone through a lot of different phases and stages of evolution with your practice. I have, yeah. I mean, I think I am just always going to be fascinated and drawn to many different traditions and many different practices. So um, at this point, the the aspects of kundalini yoga that I would have most in my my own 
kind of daily life would be um, meditation practices. And then I, I do Ashtanga yoga and a number of other kind of types of yoga. I'll go to yin yoga classes. And um, so my own practice is still quite eclectic. And I, I feel at this point that definitely music is my primary um, kind of place of finding whatever that is that we get out of our kind of contemplation and, and stillness. And it's just kind of the place that feeds me most in that way. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that. Um, what, what similarities or areas of overlap do you find between music, whether it be composing or performing music or, or listening to music, um, overlapping with, with traditional notions of what a yoga practice looks like? Yeah, such an interesting question. I think, I think probably with meditation, it's, they're almost the same thing, you know, like I think, um, to me playing music or listening to music can be exactly the same as an experience of meditation with chanting or silent meditation. And that could be listening to any, any kind of music. You know, I think it's more the space that you hold, the kind of openness you have in yourself to take in the experience of what is being offered, you know, musically. Um, I think with yoga, it's a little bit different because, um, you know, I think the experience of breath and movement being, you know, linked is really pretty powerful. That's in the experience of yoga. And I, I would, so I would personally kind of think mostly of music and meditation as being most similar. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, do you find that you, when creating new music that you tap into a meditative state in order to find your most creative, um, sources of inspiration? I, it's funny. I kind of feel like, um, it's more important to me, the experiences I've had over my life and the kind of just constant exploration of that more meditative space, um, in myself and in practices, it's almost like those then feed this way that creativity can come to the surface and you're kind of listening closely enough to notice it come. So I'm not very intentional or very literal about how I use meditation. Like I wouldn't sit down and meditate before recording or before writing a song. I would usually write a song when I'm like cleaning the house or something and, and a song starts coming to me. You know, it's very much, again, sort of um, immersed in life. Um, but I do think that just having, having practices and things that keep me open, keep me feeling relaxed and, um, kind of connected to myself, those things then result in being in a more creative space just in general, I think. Mm -hmm. Right, right. The, even if these practices do have an ability to connect us to our subconscious and um, unlock uh, sources of creativity within, 
it doesn't necessarily mean that it's happening on like a short term basis. Like you don't sit down and meditate and then get the inspiration right there. There's kind of a slow burn and a compound effect from integrating practices routinely into your life. And yeah, exactly. I, I certainly agree with that. I found that to be the case for me. Yeah, totally. Well, what about other inspiration beyond beyond your own internal awareness? I know that you've collaborated with many, many other artists and as someone who is well-known in the musical world music community and the yoga community, what have you learned from some of the other uh, artists that you've collaborated with? Yeah, I love that question because I think collaborating is my favorite part of the whole thing. Um, There's kind of like, you know, in your own world, whether it's just in your experience or musically, there's like something that's available to you. And then in another person, there's that same experience happening. And then when you come together, it's like there's this third totally unique thing that can come. Um, And so I always feel that that is incredibly inspiring. And um, so I try to have as much collaboration in my life musically as possible. And so that could be something as simple as just like in my kind of local pub, I'll go and play in the, um, you know, play in the like Irish sessions with my guitarist and we'll just, that kind of collaboration, that'll kind of after like a heavy day, leave me feeling so light. So to me, that's, that's, um, collaboration as well. But then with artists like Trevor Hall or Pia or um, Rising Appalachia, those experiences were people who I just really kind of appreciated and admired as people and as artists. And I was just really excited to see what would come, you know, as we kind of brought our individual creativity together, what that third entity would be like. And so, um, yeah, I guess the, the thing I learned most from that is just the kind of trust and openness to come to a collaboration ready to allow something that is not kind of my normal way or my expected outcome and to kind of just allow that um that kind of mingling of our creativity to bring something that's totally original and unique so it's actually quite quite fun and exciting but i think it does take a sort of openness and and an allowing um the expectations to dissipate Mm. Well, now it's becoming very clear how how musical expression fits quite nicely into yoga practice. I mean, these are all concepts that we try to embody in our practice, whether it's through music or through movement or through witnessing the challenges of, of everyday life. Yeah, it's so true. Yeah. And that's kind of the... Um, I think that's where I'm also feeling that it's um, these experiences of yoga or meditation being a part of your life, the, the kind of effects of that or result of that might kind of percolate over time. It might be many years until then there's some sort of blossoming of a seed that was planted 20 years before. You know, I think that's the beauty of these sort of meditation or yoga practices is that it's not about getting somewhere, but often things just kind of arise out of um, the openness we bring to whatever our practice is. 
What has been something that was very challenging about um, pursuing your music as a career? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, like, for example, a- has it ever um, compromised the way that it, it, it has it ever compromised the benefit that it offered to you when it was purely out of passion? Yeah. Um, I think in terms of making music, I actually feel more connected to that process than, than ever. And I think being able to do it as my work just gives me an amount of time and space with music that just allows me to kind of always go deeper into it. So I don't have that experience while I know many people do, you know, that the process of doing what you love for work can kind of take the joy out of it. But I don't, Um, I don't have that experience. I do find elements of it very difficult. Like I love home. I really love home and always have. And um, my family has always traveled a lot. And as a kid, I always said, I'm never going to travel when I get older. Like I'm never going to have this sort of lifestyle because I just love being home. And so, of course, here I am. I'm never home. I'm always I'm always on a plane heading somewhere. Um, and so I think things like that, you know, people probably imagine a life of constant travel to be quite fascinating and interesting. And it most definitely is, you know, seeing so many places, but it's also, I think, quite exhausting and quite hard on, on your body. And, you know, with my history of just autoimmune um, issues and hormonal kind of challenges, um, the constant change of time zone and climate and, um, so much time on planes, it's pretty difficult, but it's very much worth it. Um, but I would say that would probably be my biggest challenge with it. It's just something I kind of have to have to do in order to do what I really love. So. Yeah. The, the timing of, of this conversation is really uncanny because just this morning I was actually reflecting and kind of ruminating about that myself. And although I'm not traveling probably anywhere near as much as you are as a, you know, world touring artist, I do go travel around quite a bit and I've been living basically a nomadic lifestyle for the past three or four months teaching yoga workshops here and there and not really having a steady, stable, rooted home. And I, I thought the same thing. It's like, should I should be grateful yeah. for this because it's this beautiful opportunity to go expand my horizons and see different cultures and uh, meet different people. And on the one hand, I am, you know, it's like such a beautiful opportunity, but it's easy to lose sight of that when you lose connection to like a sense of stability. Yeah. So what what kind of tips do you have as someone who's lived through this for a long time and as someone who is not naturally inclined to that sort of lifestyle? How how do you maintain some semblance of routine and consistency amidst the the flux and change of touring? Yeah, well, I'm super interested in hearing yours as well. Um, but I, yeah, I guess my kind of, my way has just been over the years because I've been doing this for about seven years, kind of traveling, um, you know, not full-time nomadic, but pretty, um, pretty consistently, like 
much more than half the time on the road. Um, and over time, I think I've just kind of discovered what's really important to me. And I, that was, that would be what I would kind of suggest to anybody is just think of those things about being home that you just love, you know, like for me, just being able to get into my own bed. Um, so even something as simple as like, um, bringing along like my favorite shawl so that I just kind of always have that feeling of like, oh, I can, even if everything's going terribly, at least I can just like wrap up and be cozy and kind of be like a little like I'm getting into my own bed, pretend that I'm getting into my own bed. Um, and things like bringing essential oils that I like to use at home so that I can just make wherever I am smell like the place I like to be. Um, kind of little things like that. And then of course, just taking care of my rhythms, like, um, you know, just staying hydrated and trying to eat really well and all these things that are really difficult when you're traveling. But, um, I think if you keep yourself feeling really good, that definitely makes everything better. Um, when I start feeling really sick and bad is when I more than ever want to be at home. Um, so yeah, it, there are ways to make it work. Yeah, I, I would definitely echo that um, those points, especially um, making yourself feel good. I think that is that's critical. I, I started experimenting with fasting on travel days, and that actually I found makes a big difference for uh, adjusting to the time zone. I don't know if you've ever oh, tried that before. No, I'll definitely have to try that because I've always wondered. You know, the the food during travel is always difficult, like in airport food and, um, trying mm -hmm. to find something that, that you don't feel terrible at the end of the day. So that definitely makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. 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 And, and also to your point about like bringing along some of the comforts of home that feel familiar, I try to make something about my morning routine the same, no matter where I am. So that even though I'm waking up in a different bed and like, you know, the, the coffee pot is at a different place every day. Uh, at least I have, you know, I brought along my, my like ground medicinal mushrooms that I have for the morning every, no matter where I am. And that makes it feel like there's something that's the same. Yeah. I'm totally the same. Like I have this little tin of tea bags, which is probably my, my like lifeline to, to um, sanity on an airplane, you know, just being able to have like my essential oils and my own tea on a 16 hour flight or something. It's amazing how those super small things that if you were at home, you wouldn't even notice them when you're kind of displaced from your comforts, then those little things just become so precious. Absolutely. And, and so do the, the more profound things. Uh, I mean, I think this kind of goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway having your practice remain on lock through all the changes is so, so big. You know, if, if I, and, and when you're traveling, that's the time when it's most tempting to slip off, but it's also the most important time to be grounded and attend to yourself, get connected to internal awareness when everything outside of you is changing so that you have some sort of familiar context to, to fall back on. Yeah, it's so true. Um, we have kind of a running joke in our band because at the beginning of a tour, everyone's got their practices and they're super strong and like everyone's doing it every morning and everyone gets to breakfast like 
totally refreshed and really early. And then by the end of the tour, nobody's doing anything and everyone just feels <laughs> awful and everyone just misses breakfast. Like we don't even get get to breakfast. But that's a very extreme case where we're like, um, you know, six weeks playing every other day or maybe even every day on weekends and kind of traveling between. And it is really challenging to keep up. But I think even just the effort to is really um, quite helpful. And I'm pretty lucky because in my band, um, my manager and everyone in my band practice yoga or are yoga teachers. So we actually teach we teach classes for each other on tour, um, especially my manager, who's she's working really hard and, you know, doing tons, but um, not performing. Somehow she keeps maintains also just kind of her temperament. She maintains a lot of energy. And so she'll teach us yoga classes in the mornings when things start getting a little kind of off course. And I think just having that sort of support while traveling is also incredibly helpful. Yes, 100%. I mean, I, I travel around with my wife often and we teach together and to have someone else who's not only like on the path with you, but also it offers some external accountability to your practice is huge. Yeah, definitely. When you're on tour uh, giving these concerts and these performances, do you ever mix in yoga classes or is the yoga practice something that you kind of do behind the scenes in the tour van and in the green rooms? Um, I used to do a lot more uh, teaching yoga while I was on tour because I do feel that it's really nice, you know, in that that space at the end of yoga at the end of a yoga class, like it's the perfect kind of ideal time to then listen to music. There's this sort of stillness and quiet and relaxation that I think is awesome for then listening to music. Um, but after a while, it just wasn't so sustainable for me to be teaching and traveling and um, playing concerts every other night and doing these wor workshops also every other day. So um, at this point, it's really more reserved for the green room and kind of just to keep ourselves going. And, um, yeah, so that's kind of where I am with it at the moment. That makes sense. You've, you've kind of doubled down on your, your biggest passion. And, um, I mean, I've never experienced your teaching, but I, I, I'm sure that I'm sure your teaching is wonderful, but your music is so, so impactful and is really touching a lot of people. So I can understand why you'd want to focus your efforts there. Yeah. It's interesting. What is, sorry, sorry to cut you off. It was, it's almost like the initial question you're asking about Dharma. Um, you know, I think for someone else, probably teaching yoga would be energizing and kind of nourishing in the way that playing music is for me. And so I kind of decided at some point that that is more kind of my dharma, you know, to kind of reference back to that, that word, like it's more my dharma because it doesn't take, um, kind of my energy as much. It really actually refuels me. And I, I kind of love that, that for someone else, the same thing that I find tiring after a while, um, is what, what fuels them, what really fills them. So kind of checking back into that idea of, um, you know, what that is for each individual person and allowing that to be incredibly individual. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Was it, I mean, in hindsight, it's always easier to reflect on the decisions that you made when they work out for you. But in the moment when you were like in the depths of doing everything and not wanting to make a choice and go down one specific path, was it scary for you to kind of walk away from teaching yoga and let other people do that so that you could focus on music? Um, it wasn't so much. I really, I really felt right about it. And if anything, I kind of held on to, um, and even continue to, to be honest, um, you know, teaching more often than I should given kind of knowing just my own energy levels. And it's just more because people who we work with will have had a workshop in the past and they'll kind of plead with me to do one and I'll, I just love them and think they're great. And so I, I agree again to, you know, do a workshop followed by a concert, which I know is, um, you know, quite exhausting in the middle of a tour. Um, so if anything, it, it has been harder to let go of it just because of other people kind of continuing to want that or kind of expect that, even though I kind of know that someone who it's their dharma to be teaching yoga should be leading that practice so that then I could be really fresh for um, doing what is mine and um, sharing my music in that way. Yeah. Wow. Okay. The, that is, um, that's a lesson unto itself also is how do we balance um the requests and the influence of others with our own internal knowing, because when it comes to Dharma or when it comes to your calling, a, a bit of it is service to others. And sometimes what people say they want from you is different from what you believe that you are most capable and most um, empowered to, to give. Yeah, definitely. And actually, I mean, this reminds me also just of... Um, kind of walking your own path, exploring spirituality. I think often people become quite attached to another person's kind of spiritual identity, especially if you're teaching yoga or teaching meditation or playing music. People want you to stay kind of the same in how you are in your own kind of spiritual path and sharing. But I think really something like self-discovery and self-exploration which is kind of at the heart of these practices, they're not kind of stagnant things. They're ever evolving and ever changing if we're really in them and allowing them to kind of open us further and take us deeper and show us um, new things. So I think, yeah, there is, a, I think also within a spiritual practice, there's often a desire from outside, for, from other people for us to stay the same. And that is quite kind of unnatural, I think, for the process. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have to deal with like, with fending off trolls? I mean, you're, you're a musical celebrity, but I imagine that in like the yoga sphere that there's probably less of that than say in like pop music, but do, is that something that you have to deal with, especially as you continue to evolve your sound and, um, and explore yourself musically, uh, unapo unapologetically? Definitely. I mean, I think um, with this type of music, there may even be more of it of a certain type. Like I think people's sort of fantasy of, oh, really? of, of what I am or, you know, what I represent within that 
um, you know, I am like a totally normal human being, like everybody else. I do all the things that everyone does, and I love being a normal human being. But sometimes people see, you know, my photo or a video or something where I'm really in like a kind of blissed out state. They think I'm just there all the time and I'm some kind of angel or something. And so I actually get some very intense and strange kind of um, like more obsessive um, people who really are, are dealing with severe mental illness. And I've, I've actually really had to deal with kind of issues with my safety, even just out of those, um, those sort of things. And I mean, that's my understanding of why that sort of thing would happen, but I'm sure it happens within any type of music as well. But, um, you know, there are great things about being so interconnected, but then, um, it can be quite uncomfortable to have your own, your life so kind of available and then have people kind of disrespect that openness so kind of mm -hmm. intensely. So what do you do about that? For the most part, um, I mean, my, my kind of team and my manager really support me a lot just in like being able to kind of evaluate the level of threat versus, you know, when somebody's actually dangerous versus when it's just a bit odd, um, or a bit kind of harsh. And, um, and then we, we do when it's actually unsafe, we do sometimes have to like have, um, you know, the police have been involved at times when it was really unsafe. So it's, I mean, that's probably up there with flights as one of the reasons that I'd rather like hang out at home and play music. But again, it's, it's, mm -hmm. that's so small compared to the number of people who, um, who receive my music and, and let me know how it's kind of serving their lives and important in their lives. And that, I mean, there's no question that it's worth it for that. Um, but there are, a handful of people who kind of give me a hard time is not the end of the world. Right. Well, that's, that's a good perspective to have on it. I'm, I'm sure that even if you understand that logically and you can come back to that in moments of calm, it's still a challenge when, when you get, you know, when you get the stalker message or, or whatever the case may be. Yeah. I think it's mostly just disappointing. Like I think the kind of openness that we come to, you know, as artists or as people sharing, um, something that we're really trying to bring something helpful to other people, it's just disappointing when then, you know, it kind of, um, is taken in that way, but yeah, mm -hmm. we move on and keep going. Yeah. And, and we don't have control over how other people receive our messages, whether it be in music or in yoga teaching or anything else that we're doing to contribute to society. We can only show up as our best selves and, and have the best intentions, but ultimately reception is up to that person and their background and, um, and their karma. Yep. Indeed. So what's coming up um, on the horizon for you? Do you have more tours that you're doing, new music coming out? What can, um, what can the Dharma Talk community look forward to uh, in, in your future if they want to hear your music or stay involved with you? Yeah, um, we have lots coming up, actually. Quite a, quite a full, busy year. Um, so we have a tour in Europe in September and October. Um, and that will be really wonderful. 
lots of um, beautiful venues and just I'm really looking forward to that. So we're going to about 20 different uh, 20 different countries in Europe and surrounding areas. And then we're also just next month, we have a retreat in Bali, um, which is sold out, but we do have a concert there that there's space for people to come. Um, and we'll also be in Thailand for a festival in, um, New Zealand and in Australia. So, um, lots of traveling. I'm probably forgetting lots of other places, but I'm sure my website could could um, have a better memory than I do. <laughs> um, and then I have a, a new project coming out for the moon. It's different meditations associated with the moon, which has been incredibly fun to make. I, I uh, self-produced it and engineered it as well. Um, and so it was really fun to record and to make and just be in that sort of expansive lunar, wild lunar space as I um, made these meditation tracks. So that's the next thing on the horizon. Very cool. Is that, um, is that meant to be listened to at different times in the lunar calendar? It is. Yeah. So there's, um, there's a new moon meditation, um, which is about 15 minutes. And I, I kind of think it's really made to be listened to in the bathtub. Like that's the, the new moon meditation is to just totally relax. And, um, it's a very spacious track. And then there's a meditation for the full moon, which is more from the Kundalini tradition. Um, and then there are also two songs on um, that are meant to be kind of at the quarter moon times, um, waxing and waning moon. So it's it's a four four track EP um, to really go with the four um, different phases of the moon. That sounds really cool. Where, where will that be? Um, so that's with Spirit Voyage. I'm releasing that with Spirit Voyage, which is a record label I've worked with a lot. And we're releasing it um, in April. So it'll be available on all, you know, all platforms, all places um, in April. Very good. Okay. Well, that's something to look forward to. Um, you obviously have lots of other music that's already available on all the platforms, Spotify, Apple music, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Hence me listening to it on the car and in my yoga classes. So thank you for that. I I'm think so happy. Thank you for listening to it. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, I think now's the perfect time to start winding things down. I close the interview with something I call the prana round. So I'm going to ask you six rapid fire questions and please answer in minimum one word and maximum one sentence. Okay. Okay. First question in one word, why do you practice yoga? Mm. Peace, I guess. What is your favorite yoga pose and why? Ooh, uh, child's pose because it's the best. <laughs> <laughs> what is the single best cue or piece of advice that you've ever received from one of your teachers? And that could be a yoga teacher or a music teacher. Oh, wow. The single best. I don't think I can do that one. Rapid fire. Hang on. Give me a second. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, my um so my my teacher who's a shaman from Mexico who was the 
one I met when I was nine. Sorry, this is long. It's a, this is a sentence. It's a run-on sentence. It's okay. He, <laughs> he told me a few years ago, go play in bars. <laughs> oh, go play and, in bars. Yeah. And the, I the shaman he, said that. The shaman said that. And I thought he said, sing Rake Rakanahar, which is like a Kundalini joke, you know, because that's a mantra. And I was like, oh, how many times? Like what time of day? And he's like, no, play in bars. (laughs) (laughs) Was that experience, a firsthand experience from the shaman playing in bars? No, I mean, it was just, I think there was actually really something to it because I grew up singing in bars, in pubs. And mm-hmm. and it was kind of, I think there has been a sort of coming full circle, like allowing those things back into my music practice. And I think that was kind of what, what he was referring to. But that, that was the best I could think of. I'm sure I had better advice, but that was what came to mind. Yeah, yeah. Your your first response is always is, is telling. Cool. What is uh, one book that you can <laughs> recommend for our audience? Ooh, um, the first one that comes to mind is women who run with the wolves because I love it and I read it often. Um, but I would also say, um, dream time by John Moriarty. And I have to say one of my dad's books because I love him and I love his books. So, soul, uh, care of the soul probably by, by Thomas More. Great. Okay. Is yoga for everyone? Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. I'll take three. Yes. Okay. And, and our last yeah, question for you. For okay. And our last question, Ajit, how can our audience get in touch with you and how can we support you in your Dharma? Oh, I love that. Um, I'm on Instagram. Most of all the platforms there are other people kind of managing different platforms for me. So Instagram, I'm actually there receiving the messages personally and writing back to people and um, doing all the posting and stories and things. So that's the place that I would love to connect with people in a more kind of direct way. So please come say hi. And I guess the way to support me in my Dharma is just to listen to my music and let me know how you feel when you listen to it. You know, let me know how it comes into your life because, um, you know, as I kind of mentioned earlier, that's what feeds me most and kind of keeps me really inspired to keep sharing because I'll always play music. But the reason I share it is because I hear that it's meaningful and that really means the world to me and keeps me keeps me going. So there we are. Well, that's a beautiful, beautiful exchange because people wouldn't listen if it were not meaningful to them. And um, I speak for myself when I say that, and I'm sure many others listening to the podcast right now. So thank you so much for the the powerful work that you do. And also thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. I really appreciate it. It was such a pleasure and I'm really happy to connect with you and uh, look forward to connecting more in the future. Dharma Talkers, I hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. And if you did, please share it. Take a screenshot, share it on Instagram, and tag me, at Henry Wins. I love hearing from you about the conversations that make an impact for you. We have the ability to shape the world through our thoughts, words, and conversation. So let's influence the collective consciousness together. 
All my gratitude to Rory Wagstaff of Ease of Mind Productions for keeping our audio crisp and operations smooth, and to Patrick Kiebzak of Momentology Music and Art for supplying the powerful soundtrack to these conversations. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review, and tune in to new episodes of Dharma Talk every Thursday. I'll speak to you next week, and until then, keep living your Dharma.